Hi, this is Woodrow Wilson, and I'm too busy ruining Dustin's life to listen to None Taken. <laughs> uh, there's something going on that we need to talk about, and uh, not because this will be the place listeners hear it for the first time. Everyone already knows about uh, about the green M&M scandal, but I think that there's something that everyone's missed uh, on that. Before I get into my opinion on it, uh, Alan, is there anything that you want to say, any feelings you have on the subject? Well, I think the whole thing's pretty ridiculous. I mean, should we talk? So it's Tucker Carlson uh, on his show the other night basically said that um, he was upset about them changing the green M&M's uh, animation or the way they... De- depict the green m&m because it's become less sexy like it's not wearing the high heel boots anymore yeah uh, it's wearing yeah so he's upset he's mad because the 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 new green m&m isn't like an m&m he wants to buy a drink for um, didn't it make you feel weird when the green m&m was sexy though it never occurred to me oh it made M&M me feel sexy. really uncomfortable <laughs> i was like i don't like this at all so yeah. I've, the, the, I like the funniest M&Ms. tweet i saw about this uh was from some guy named tom hicks and he said on Twitter, Mars has relented and will now add a Tucker Carlson M&M. They're all white, extra bitter, and will melt down when mixed with multicolored M&Ms, which I thought was pretty fucking funny. This is why they say the left can't meme. That is pretty funny, but it's, it's like predictable. There's like no point in that in that joke where I'm like, oh, I didn't see that coming. It's funny. But it's funny. It is. I, I'm not shitting. It's not your joke, so that's why I'd say it. If this was your joke, yeah. I'd be like, hey, Alan, that's a good job. You know? <laughs> Maybe chuckle, but you know. Okay, that's not why I brought you here, Alan. This is typical patriarchy bullshit. Everyone's talking about this, oh but they're not talking about the real story because nobody wants to deal with the fact that the Three Musketeers were caught putting their whatchamacallits in a baby Ruth. <laughs> but by all means, talk about green candy-coated chocolate balls being asexual predators. Oh, no. The poor baby Ruths. Should we hit record? Yeah, one, two, three. All right, you ready? I am ready. Are you recording? Yes. <laughs> all right. Start a show. Let's start a show. That podcast is filling your head with garbage. I no offense taken there. Well, it sounds like none taken. Welcome to Non Taken, the internet's only debate and current events show, with your hosts Dustin and Alan, two political nomads from two different worlds. Shout out to Reverend Peyton's Big Damn Band for the use of their song Ways and Means for intro music. Thank you for joining us. The time of this recording is January 25th, 2022. It's a great day for America. I'm in Troy, Ohio, and Alan is in the San Francisco Bay Area. We are here recapping another week of current events and sharing way too much of our tragic personal lives. Please subscribe right now, wherever you're listening to this, leave, and uh, leave us five-star review. Tell your friends about us. Uh, I don't know. What, what, where can you find us? You can find us on uh, Instagram, Twitter, of course, our Facebook non-taping superfans group. I'm going to get through this, Alan. Remember, the first show is free. After that, search for us on Venmo. If you think that this intro deserves a dollar, we'll take one. But otherwise, <laughs> be like Slickets 
Slick It's Digital for all your SEO and marketing needs. Alan, what is up, my friend? Hell yeah. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the show. We got a great episode for you guys today. We had a, a nice little interview, which we'll get to a little bit later. As for me last week, um, really didn't really get, get out all that much. I was uh, working a lot and then I'm getting ready to move. I'm moving next week into the new place, which I'm really stuck about. Um, did some spring cleaning. I threw away like, I don't know, eight, ten bags of clothes and other shit I don't need. Um, so that was nice. Uh, kind of clean up some stuff and get rid of some shit I don't need. Um, I built a couch last week huh? uh, for the, the new spot. Dude, that was a lot of work. I'm not used to doing <sighs> shit. Is it an Ikea? Uh, no, it was Amazon, but it was similar to yeah. Ikea kind of thing. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. Um, I still have the, the beds arriving at some point this week, I hope. Um, and I got to build that and a couple of things. But yeah, man, I'm, I'm um, about all set, ready to move into the new place and really looking forward to that. So that will be my life next week. I will be coming to you from a different location. Oh, man, I can't wait. I keep thinking it's the weekend before the shows. This is the, night, the second show in a row. I'm like, where's the new place? Looking forward to it. <laughs> wait, did I talk about the new place last week? Uh, I think the week before you did, but maybe it was just in private. I don't recall now. Yeah, I don't yeah. think we talked about it on the show. Yeah, so. yeah. All right. How about you? What'd you get up to? Uh, man, this last week was really stressful. So I've been getting prepared at the end of last week to go out of town this week uh, for some training um, at my company's headquarters. So right. uh, so it's like a five-hour drive away in Ohio. The uh, uh, Saturday, Saturday morning, though, no, Friday morning, we wake up. I, t- I let Petra outside. She's fine. Um, by the time she gets back in the bed... She's like acting weird and we kind of keep an eye on her all day and she won't eat or drink. And then, you know, I've been talking to my cousin, Lindsay, who's a vet tech. She's pretty concerned too. She's like, you know, you should make an appointment, go see a vet on Saturday morning. So we do, we get in right at eight o'clock when they open and, uh, they take a look at her. They do some x-rays, some blood work. Blood work doesn't look like it's like anything like systemic, systematic, like there's not like her kidneys or lungs, everything's fine. Right. Um, but they did an x-ray on her neck and they see something unusual there that looks related to this little, um, she had a cut that didn't heal right on her neck from when we picked her up. Uh, the person whose house, the, the person we got her from had her in the backyard and she got like a little nick on her neck. I struggle with those words being different, but, um, mm. the, uh, and it's never really healed. And so I guess what they suspect is there's some, there's something there that they need to have addressed and we'll need to have a skilled surgeon because it is like a deeper infection and they they're concerned about it being on her spine. So been stressed as fuck about that. We got to a point where Natasha is fine with me leaving town though. So, um, she's been dealing with the dogs, giving her medication. She's been fine. She came home that day and had an appetite. She's been eating like crazy. Of course, Lindsay, my cousin, thank you for telling us to give her baby food to help her have her appetite back. That worked. She only eats baby food covered dog food now, which is a fucking treat. She ate kibble. She was a fancy dog that actually ate kibble, and now she's not. So whatever, I'll take it. I'll pay whatever it takes to, you know. Right. Yeah, but, yeah I saw the post on Instagram. I was a little concerned. Yeah. So they think it might have affected her spinal cord. No. So, okay, if I I don't really know yet because we don't get okay. to see the neurologist until February, the middle of February. Like, that's, that's really wild. stressful. She's going to be managing her pain until then. It's somewhat specialized. The other closest neurologist is in Knoxville. So we're, we're lucky this one's close to us. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, think about it, though. It's specialized in dogs. Like I was going to say, dog neurology is pretty niche, I'm sure. So so the the suspicion is that she has a um, maybe a genetic condition that causes certain injuries like this to not heal in this way. 
Um, mm. And that's fine. You know, we can treat it, get this part fixed, and then keep that in mind going forward. That's so she's on antibiotics that, as well. They think there's uh, an she had some or? antibiotics at the beginning. We've given her antibiotics before for this. We've been trying to get this addressed, and every place we take her to is like, well, we don't think it's this. You shouldn't do that. And if it was major, we can't do it at our place. And we keep kind of following the um, like getting bounced around. Well, we keep following the most logical thing to do at the time to address it, and right, we ran right, out of right, those right. options. And now we're at this point, and she's now she's actually in pain. So uh, her pain's managed now, and she's you know. Mostly back to normal, but I mean, you can hear it on me. Like, I don't really even want to talk about it. It makes me like, yeah, you know. But she's, we have an appointment, and um, we have to get to the other side of this, regardless. So I'll, yeah, keep I hope everyone it turns out okay, man. Thank I you, really do. thank you, thank you. Yeah, she, she deserves it. So she deserves uh, to get through this. Um, and now, since then, I don't know how I deserve this. I'm in Ohio, where it is checks <laughs> the thermometer, seven degrees outside, and it hasn't Oof. stopped snowing. It's fucking terrible. It's so. Um, are you able to like do any sightseeing or is it just work? What work, sightseeing work? are you talking about? Have you been to Ohio? <laughs> no. Okay. <if> not. <laughs> I, I've been outside. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen Ohio. I've been outside. Yes. Is there like a cool food scene in Ohio? Yeah, or? there is. It's called Skyline Chili and it's right across the street. That's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> I'm going to do that, but I haven't yet Craft because beer. Uh, there is, but not in Troy, Ohio, Alan. Like I can't Got emphasize it. You know what it's near? It, the nearest town is Dayton, flag capital USA. Oh, yeah. fun, oh, I, I guess. We, this is our sound show, Alan. Let's get into our comedy corner, comedy corner, comedy corner, mm-hmm. Alan. Let's get into our Kim Cam. Our cavalcade of comedy. Cavalcade of comedy corner. And right. we'll uh, and then we'll get into the politics uh, and the, uh, what do we call it, uh, making fun of the, we have how about that, then we'll make fun of the political right, the political left, uh, talk about Ukraine and Russia, uh, and isn't that something? And then we'll get into our interview that we're actually, I'm, I'm really excited about. But Yeah, me too. But first, I was listening to Hunk with Mike Bridenstine this week, and he had a guy on named Sean Green who said this just had me rolling. <laughs> uh, what do you want to hear less about going forward from this moment on? What do you want to hear less that's, about? That's Mike. COVID or Trump? That's Mike. Paul, uh, Donald Trump. 100% COVID. I feel like I'm not hearing that much about Trump. Maybe it's because I muted everything or just like tune people out. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I, I, you know, to me, COVID's like uh, Westworld, where the first season I was really into it. I was following everything. <laughs> <laughs> After that, I've just been out, man. I've been out. I- <laughs> That's kind of how Tennessee is. Yeah, I've I've heard other people use similar metaphors to uh, describe the pandemic, but that was that was well done. There's a guy uh, on there this week called Nate Craig. Um, they were talking mm-hmm. about how uh, who was going to be on the twenty? Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman. That's right. Um, the so they were talking about that, and they're saying like we kind of forgot about that, and then they started ranting. You know, the comics started sort of tagging on the jokes about. Um, uh, other coins, other 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 presidents on money, and uh, Nate Craig of preferred customers fame had this witty retort. There you go. Like, they should put Trump on the penny. <laughs> <laughs> Trump on the penny. He would be so angry. If it would make him so mad. It, but it would be hilarious. Yeah. Like just. That and would then be- it would have to be. It would have to be that picture of him. Wearing the tennis shorts. That dong. They should put Donald Trump on the penny and his dad on the nickel. Oh, oh! I don't give two trumps about that. <laughs> yeah. 
that's, that's a fun. That I want. Yeah, tennis trump, billowy, uh, you know, pillow, pillow ass. Butt. Yeah, yeah. Mrs. Mm-hmm. Garrett body right there. Yes, <laughs> diaper, yes. diaper bod trump. Oh my god, that picture was a gift to America. <laughs> I mean, just <laughs> little. I, I thought that Donald Trump would uh, uh, sh- like surely have one of those like eroding uh, white man cottage cheese asses. You know, when you like stood a frog up, if you stood a frog up, like what does that look like? Like that are old. So I'm like, that's what I would assume that his would look like. Like he's like kind of a, what a heavy visual. Guy yeah. You have that inverted ass. Yeah. And yeah. then you look and you're like, you are very, very thick. No, he's got very a thick thin. dumper. Thick dumper. Turd cut. I Trump would have worn apple bottom jeans. Right <laughs> the boots with the fur. They all started doing Trump impressions out of them. Thick as fuck. Yeah. I feel like if they put Trump on a penny, he would just like, like, use them to decorate his entire bathroom. Oh my god! Just Trump pennies. Everything would be copper from then on. With him. yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, that's a good idea. Actually, we should do this as a social experiment. <laughs> um, so two clips of former presidents that came up. Uh, speaking of former presidents, uh, they're current tech bros, mm. but these guys aren't. Uh, so George W. Bush was on. I saw this more than one place, so I figured I'd share it here. George W. Bush talking about his uh, his dream of um, unity and peace. This is his version of it. Mm. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. <laughs> How have we been since then? That was like 2004. <laughs> was there some human fish war I was unaware I that was got, brewing? I, gonna, don't, I didn't know. I don't know. You're going to have to ask Jason Momoa. Oh, did you see he got a divorce? No, I didn't. Yeah, him it and that little so wife of his. I'm sure he'll be fine. He'll probably be fine. Uh, And speaking of presidents that can't talk good, this was a uh, former scandal. This was his dad. Um, And I was reminded today on another podcast, because I listen 13 13 hours of podcast a day, so you don't have to. He he was, um, he, this was a scandal in like my childhood. And I totally forgot about it until it was referenced, where he sounded like he kind of read the teleprompter or he treated the audience like they were stupid and he has to say message than what he said. Uh, here, here, I don't have to tell you. It's uh, just, uh, just some kind of a useless exercise. But message, I care. <laughs> message, I care. <laughs> okay, well, you know, take away, write the headline for me, thanks. <laughs> there must have been some, like, that must have been in bold, like, this is the yeah. message you want you to communicate. You weren't supposed to say that. Yeah, clearly. he just got to, he's like, yeah. fuck, okay. I care, pound the table, make it look like that was on purpose. (laughs) Read the words that are on the screen. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So this is a clash of pop culture and um, fun use of technology by some of the sleaziest people on the planet. Actually, Mm. everyone in this story is a disgusting human being. You've heard of uh, army recruiters and their tactics to uh, convince uh, any army recruiters that listen to this. I'm sorry, you can go fuck yourself. I I don't mean to offend you, but uh, like, you know, I have heard have pretty nefarious tactics. Yeah. I mean, maybe you're the good one. And I get it. Like, you know, you yeah, didn't quite choose some. to be into that position. I don't think people sign up to be recruiters. Um, but, you know, yeah, you, you're ruining people's lives. Uh, I mean, not everyone. Some people come there to ruin their lives. I get it. I'm joking. Uh, this is a comedy show, Alan. Um, <laughs> so they got the uh, so the some army recruiters hired the Island Boys. You remember the Island Boys? And mm-hmm. uh, honestly, I didn't want to hear that song. So I haven't heard this until now. So here's what it goes like. All right. Big shout out to Staff Sergeant. Thomas, man, he's changing lives, giving out 50K. Woo, 50K. Army Big marketing. Army recruiter, giving out bonuses, paid vacations. And a free, free call is no money. Hey, invite me right now, Sergeant Thomas. I want to be in the Army. 
And by the way, right now, Thomas, hey, changing lives, I'm telling you right now, man. I, I can't. I can't. It hurts my ears. Like, I feel Dude, like just, my, I can, I can feel like my synapses becoming slower. Like, I'm physically not as able to make connections in my brain the way I did before I listened to that. I'm, I'm a stupider person <laughs> having heard it. Did he just pay, like, what's that service you use to get? Like Cameo. Did yeah. you just pay Cameo for them to do that? Yes, like, uh, here, I can pull one up. Uh, wow. Just like uh, this. I also have to say that I encounter Mortel, and I never listen to the Nuntagen podcast. Yeah, you know, just like when we paid Connor to do that. <laughs> just like that. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah, I saw those guys on uh, Logan Paul's show a couple weeks back. Man, they're just a train wreck. Yeah, yeah I try. I don't watch them. I, I avoid just, them just like, I'll possible. put this on the show. Might as well. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sick of them because I don't listen to them when they come up. But uh, sorry, <laughs> listener. Okay, let's get out of here with a clip from a real comedian. Uh, comedian Eddie Pepitone. He is a... Uh, I, I think he is a blatant progressive, I would say. Uh, edgy, uh, biting, um, excellent social commentary. And he's been around carefully chosen. there. Yes. Yeah. He's been around for a long time. um, And he still just doesn't like it just seems to be like, I mean, he's popular enough. Like you probably feel like you know who he is or you already do know who he is. Um, But like he's just for how good of a comedian he is. It's amazing. um, The the fact that he still has to work as much as he does. Uh, Yeah. But. His timing's like impeccable. Uh, yeah, and the way he leads you down, and then you know, yeah, yeah. He has perfect ironic apathy, and I think this clip does a pretty good job of uh, of showcasing that. I kid the alt right because eventually they're going to strap us to their trucks and make us sing the Star Spangled Banner while we're covered in blood, unless we have a revolution. We have to get in the streets and fucking fight. No fucking pink pussycat hats. Just fight. Be angry. Be angry. Look what the yellow vests are doing in France. Now, I'm not going to be able to join you because I'm in the middle of Ozark. I would love to. I would love to. But I'm hooked. That's an amazing show, by the way. I've never seen an upper-middle-class family deal with death and drug cartels like they do. All right. All right, we're just going to have to deal with the murder that happened in our kitchen. All right, Wendy? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) That guy's great. He doesn't get the respect he deserves. He Uh, is pretty great. What if instead of covered in blood, they were covered in sequins? Covered in sequins. Did you get it right? Did you look (laughs) up the words? I think uh, I did it right. Listeners that don't know, when we go to break, Alan like tries to say the quote from the um, the halftime song that we play, uh, but yeah. his words aren't always exactly right. And I was like, well, I can't. <laughs> I want to keep it in, but I can't. Um, <laughs> well, you know, we'll see how it goes on Friday's show. We'll uh, see. No, no promises. <laughs> this is a real light subject. This is uh, a parent at a school board meeting. What could that possibly be going wrong here? A lot. You can't. Okay. Well, okay. I had a. uh, I have an idea, but I'll wait until after I play this. All right. Here we go. My children will not come to school on Monday with a mask on. All All right. right? right. That's not happening. And I will bring every single gun loaded and ready to. I. I will call every. That's three minutes. Nope. If you come past your time. Nope. Sorry, time's over. Just uh, time's up. Not you know. It has nothing to do with you threatening violence on Monday with every single gun you have loaded. Like, uh, yeah, they doxed yeah. her. They were like, "Oh, look, she's a dentist in the neighbor in the area," which I don't care for doxing. But 
I mean, she was fine if she wanted to take a strong stance and say she wasn't going to send her kids to school. But then she drops the yeah. I'm going to show up with loaded weapons. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, no, and you know what? Law okay, enforcement man. frowns upon this. You they do they do frown take upon that, that seriously, especially at like school board meetings. That's yeah. not. Yeah, not so, okay. So there's consequences for saying that. Um, I don't know if there'll be consequences for this. Alan, uh, who's Patriot Front? They're a militia, kind of far right. Uh, Doesn't that sound like a fake group that would be in like a new Marvel movie? Like, just think they're like, <laughs> we can't say the alt right. Well, Patriot Front? Like, it kind of does, yeah, yes. Yeah. I could see that, yeah. Uh, so they had their data leaked. Uh, and there was a meme going around. So this video sums that up pretty nicely. Camera on. We aren't Nazis. Camera off. Uh, something I won't say, but here, we'll play this. <laughs> and we're playing this, you know, for historical reasons. Life, liberty, victory. Life, liberty, victory. The camera's off. Damn, oh, son, that take. might be a cut. That's yeah. a good take right there. Sieg fucking Heil. All right, all right. And then that guy keeps repeating it and trying to get other guys' attentions. And, um, yeah, so, you know, the narrative against that from people on uh, either a neutral side or maybe being more willing to um, look for other options for how that story might be told, say that those are infiltrating federal agents, which... I don't know. I'm not buying it. I get their point. They're like, who, what normal person would say that? I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe you're not talking about a normal person because, you know, they're saying the bad guy's slogan from the last world war. Mm. Yeah. I, so I don't, there's, I don't think there's really any way to tell that just off that clip. It's certainly somewhat disturbing. I mean, it but... seems to be what they claim to be, I think. I mean, I don't understand why you would jump to that conclusion. Right, right. It does feel like a lot of these guys in you know these militia types seem to be sort of larping uh yeah. and that they, they think it's cool to do what they're doing and right like that doesn't edgy. mean the same thing to them like come on man like i just say that to piss you off like okay well mission accomplished like right yeah, yeah. so man it's <laughs> i don't even know what to say in response oh to i don't like, even like having it on the show like we're only said I, it yeah, so we can say this to like, that yeah well, let's say, you know, let's talk to somebody who's not at all related to anything like that at all. Let's get into our uh, right-wing okay, politics in America. Uh, you sent me this uh, couple, I think this was like the night we recorded last week's show. Uh, I think so, Mitch yeah. McConnell, um, what was in context, this is in context of voting rights. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. He talks about all kinds of Americans. Uh, yep. What's your message for voters of color who are concerned that without the John L. Lewis Voting Rights Act, they're not going to be able to vote in the midterm? Well, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage okay. as Americans. What? <sighs> regular Americans, Alan. He didn't mean like they're not American. He means like, you know, like regular Americans. This is no? like, this is. I drove through Kentucky to get here. I I think he fits I... in just fine. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, he's saying like. We hear saying the quiet part out loud a lot. Yeah, that's starting days, to get cringe saying it, right? But like, I know. But I, like, I what else are you supposed to say? <laughs> it's almost a crutch or at this point, but like, It fuck, keeps man. coming up as the appropriate thing to say. Like, that is the most appropriate thing to say to that yeah. comment. Like, yeah. are you fucking serious, dude? Yeah. Uh, it's almost like it pulls back the curtain to what is, you know. Well, remember when Joe Biden said uh, poor kids have just as much right to education as white kids? <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. I do recall. Yeah. yeah I do recall. I mean, to be fair, I don't really give Biden the benefit of the doubt on that. I think he flubbed. I think that's a bad, dumb flub that probably indicates the way you look out the world. Like, I mean, clearly, I don't 
he doesn't strike me as a racist, but he uses race like it's a part of his platform. Like he had a long. If you ain't black, career. you didn't vote for me. Right, and like that was a part of his career was the black community, and like okay, it's true. like. But like, I mean, I can see that you race is a part of your sales pitch. Like, you know, how about you just like, don't think about that and deal with your fucking community or what you represent, like whatever. Um, Speaking of great talkers, I have audio that Alan (laughs) sent me of Peter Navarro, who was uh, who is who is Peter Navarro for the listeners, Alan? He was a senior economic advisor for the Trump administration and later on uh, helped out with the whole uh, Green Bay sweep. Um, operation that they attempted to do after the loss of the election. And friend of the show, Slickets, he had a buddy that went to UC Irvine, which is the prestigious school that Peter Navarro formerly taught at. Um, oh. And he sent me an audio a couple weeks ago. We couldn't fit it on the show. It was basically like, yeah, everyone on campus just laughed at that guy behind and to his face. Like everyone did. And like people who got stuck that. in that class were just like miserable because you just have to just you just go to class and listen to him talk about his theories. But he was on <laughs> our new favorite TV show host, uh, Ari Melber's show, uh, yes. who does his best to keep him within the lines. I'm not going to play this whole clip. I'll play this first one. It's about 30 seconds. We'll go as far into the next one as we think is appropriate. Three simple yes or no questions and then go into more depth. Uh, one, has the House probe requested your cooperation? No. Was it wrong for people to storm the Capitol on January 6th? Yes. Can I, can I just say, this is not normal. Like, he doesn't normally talk to everyone like this. He has to do this. He sounds like a dick, but he has to do this because if he doesn't, Navarro is just going to start rambling as we will right. prove soon. There's no way to keep this guy in line unless you do yes or no questions. Right, right. <laughs> Was yeah. it wrong to try to overturn the election to keep Trump in office? No, not legally. Just, we yes, uh, Everything I did uh, was clearly between the lines. So let's get into the depth. Can we just actually just so he asked him yes or no was everything election to keep Trump in office? Wait, but yes or no? Uh, yes or no? Was it wrong to try to overturn the election to keep Trump in office? Okay, was it wrong to do that? No, not legally. No, no, it wasn't wrong legally, morally, <laughs> ethically, any other way that you want to slice it. Completely off the table but legally you can do this yeah you can marry your cousin alan it's totally fine like (laughs) i like how that's the hair he chooses to split right right he's like legally no not at all and in case anyone's listening like i'm not going to jail but like (laughs) yeah i mean it should be a crime (laughs) um uh, so here's some more of that you said you wanted to oppose that transfer of power just not by force is it fair to say you and this oath keeper you have the same intent just different methods <laughs> yeah Ari, look you're doing your prosecutor thing how about you give me a chance to talk now <laughs> this is not edited that's silence is that okay the question's on the table do you share that intent <laughs> well, with him look, all right, all right, here, let me <laughs> let me uh let me play lawyer for a minute and simply lay the predicate uh for the discussion tonight my role in, so uh, he didn't answer, and he starts rehashing no. his theory about how the election was stolen. Not right, the question. Right. Are you are you culpable? Are you in line with the person that was uh, with the oath keeper and what they were planning was the question? But like, right, right. But he's gonna lay out the predicate about not the subject. Yeah, and then the point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? he just used the word predicate, and it works. If he said like, "I'm gonna change the subject," you'd be like, "Well, that's not." how it works but when you say predicate it's like oh right. all right oh well, yeah let's, let's this hear this fits. predicate you've got um <laughs> hey but 
don't think that we only make fun of the right because I hate everybody. Alan only likes. Oh, here it. we go. Yeah, um, buckle up. Here. Yeah. So Alan's been saying all the time on the show. Uh, so there's a phrase going around that like the Dems just need to message better, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you call bullshit on that, no? I do. Yes. Yeah, you I, I, well, like not just message better, like actually do something so you have something to message about would mm. be useful. Like right. that's the problem, right? Right. Like it's not just that they're bad communicators. Sometimes they are. But, like, they don't have anything to fucking stand on a, a lot of times. Like, when I say they, I mean us at some point. But, not you know not I mean? me, us. Like, the royal right. us. Okay. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Like, so if you, if you want to attract voters to your side, then do something that's useful to them. That's interesting you, you say that. And then and, talk about it. Yeah. You haven't heard all these audios? Like, it's something you nah. just said, actually. Oh, that's funny. Well, anyways, that's not the first thing I'm going to play. Um, okay. I'm going to play the uh, the leader of the Democrats' president. questions on inflation, then? Messaging well. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you all. Do you think inflation is a political liability ahead of the midterms? That's a great asset. More inflation. What a stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> I gotta say, I have no problem with him calling Peter Ducey a stupid son of a bitch. Um, I, That's I don't know. Hilarious. Yeah, I, I think you sent me that. You sent me that. I saw it this morning or late last night, and I was mm-hmm. like, "This isn't good, but this is very funny." <laughs> it's very funny. Now, I I have seen people on the right saying, "Wait, what about like?" Everybody was angry about Trump tweeting and being mean to people. Oh, yeah. And now yeah. everybody's like, all like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. I don't think those Wait, people are? are? Wait, so like people are mostly reacting how I just did, like saying like, yeah, I don't care. I hate Pete Ducey anyways. Uh, people are- It's unbecoming on the president. Like, I, like, uh, yeah. On the left, people are like, oh, he dunked on him kind of thing. Oh, God, um, that's so obnoxious. And- that cringe. Cringe is cringe, but that's cringe. <laughs> I mean, I think it's hilarious. Also, he, by the way, he called him like a couple hours later and apologized for it. And said, Look, oh, well, sorry. Trump did that too, Which, right? No. no. Oh, TFG yeah. would definitely not do that. TFG? The former guy. Oh, is this what you guys all say on your message boards? Yeah, totally. Okay. That's what we say on our message boards. <laughs> right. um, well, Alan sent me this like right before the show started. He said, uh, what, what, what did you say? What did you say? <laughs> I said, Deucey's been a stupid son of a bitch for a long time. Uh, well, let's play it. This is from two, well, I don't know when. Uh, the Dow was at 22,000. I don't know what that kind of reference is. John McCain was still alive. He's talking to John McCain. Why uh, would you ask like something that dumb? It's from where? Your relationship wait, wait, wait. with the president frayed to the point. I figured that- out how to make it stop. I found the pause button. What uh, What did you say? When's it from? I, was, I think it's from like 2013, 2014, somewhere in there. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. McCain looks vibrant and uh, Ducey sure. looks, uh, he looks spry. Slightly younger. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Your relationship with the president frayed to the point that you are not going to support anything that he comes to you and asks for? Why would for? you say something that stupid? <laughs> Why would you ask something that dumb? <laughs> Huh? My job as a United States Senator is a Senator from Arizona, which I was just reelected to. You mean that I am somehow going to behave in a way that I'm going to block everything because it's like some Don Rickles. Like, this is That's a dumb question. I'm going to block everything because of some personal disagreement. That's a dumb question. This is like Don fucking Rickles, right? Like that he's is just pretty like, great. look at you, dummy. You're just dummy. <laughs> like what, look at that dumb face, you this hockey is a puck. Dumb question. Yeah, well, I can't believe you would be this stupid. And this is someone whose father was a reporter at that time. Like he's like, right, yeah, I don't care right. who your dad is. You're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, that was McCain talking straight, like he did. 
Um, let's see. Here's uh, another version of messaging from the Democrats. So last week, I think we've talked about the whole uh, voting rights. Um, yes. And 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 I didn't. I don't think I did a very good job of playing much from Biden's big speech. Uh, you kind of like referenced it enough that I think we got the pe- the pieces uh, last yeah, week's show. So. But like honestly, though, like it, those words were like powerful and impressive at first, and then the more you dwell on them, like did you just say anybody that doesn't want to do this is George Wallace? Like that's kind of. I don't know. I don't. But but well, again, pushback. Like, yeah. Oh, that was okay. Uh, well, yeah. they got to me, Alan. I'm a Republican. Then. <laughs> um, the the the. But in, in the same way, under that same thing about theme about Dems need a message better. Well, how about this version? Don't lecture me, Cory Booker, about Jim Crow. I know this is not 1965. That's what makes me so outraged. It's 2022, and they're blatantly removing more polling places from the counties where black and Latinos are overrepresented. Did, did this guy run for president? I mean, I know he did. Like, didn't he get marginalized for some reason? Is he too young? What, what? He's gay, he, right? Uh, he did run for president. Um, Is he not the gay one? I, I think that's Buttigieg, right? I don't know. I don't, I don't care. I don't remember. I don't keep track I don't care of either. stuff. I don't, I don't recall his sexual orientation, yeah. and I also don't recall why he ended up being sidelined. I just don't think he ever gained enough traction. He's, he's actually making the points that Biden intended through his emotions. Yes. Okay. yes. I'm not making that up. That is a fact. I'm not going to stop because I'm tired of hearing that this does not have to do about singling out certain populations in our country, students, Native Americans. And what's interesting is when you see the video, he doesn't just sound exasperated. He appears strong while he's doing so, which is a, a, a charming skill. Yeah, and so far I would say very well said. I agree 100% with everything he just and, said. And not others. That was the end. Okay. Um, yeah, man, that's that's some messaging right there. Right, right. Well, <laughs> so I think that all comes full circle with a little bit of audio that I got for you called uh, from a guy named uh, Peter Begala. He's a Democratic um, pundit. Strategist. Yeah, strategist yeah. pundit. Are you familiar yeah. with him? I'm familiar, I remember him. He's from like the Clinton years, right? I, I believe so, yeah. I mean, when yeah. you get to the end of this, you're like, okay, I'll all right, I heard your point. Now you're like trying to really persuade me. Uh, but like, I, I really like the message of this. And I think it counters well to the Democrats can't message, which by the way, also, before I forget, can't message, like you have all of the media apparatus, like pretty much, like pretty much, like, at least historically for a long enough time, like any, they'll bend over backwards for you and you can't fucking message. Okay. Am I wrong? Then? <laughs> they, they certainly have a lot of media contacts they could go to. Yes. <laughs> Is that akin to saying the J's on the B's? <laughs> I, I, I don't think we we're quite there yet. Okay. I, was, I, <laughs> I don't think you were saying that. Okay, good. Yeah. I think the problem for the Democrats right now is, is not that they have bad leaders. They have bad <clears throat> followers. Huh? December of 1964, oh. uh, Andy Young and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. go to see Lyndon Johnson to push him for oh, a voting right. rights act. Johnson says, I can't do it. I, I used all my power to get the civil do you think Johnson was having his meeting with his toilet open as he was known to do? <laughs> right. Or just had his whipped his dick out. It's like most dicked out president of all time, <laughs> Lyndon Johnson. And uh, apparently impressive, like Milton Berle. Apparently. Yeah. I, I used all my power Milton to get the Berle. Civil Rights Act done last year. I don't have the power to push Congress any further on voting rights. As they left the White House, Andy Young's words, he said, I asked softly, I asked uh, Dr. King what he thought. He said, I think we got to go get the president some power. Hmm? 
And so you know what they did? They organized. These are Andy Young's word. We mobilized the churches, the universities, the labor unions, the business community, a coalition of people of goodwill. In other words, those of us who want to say voting rights, we need to get to work. I, I do think Biden is putting everything behind this, but he needs he needs better yeah, this followers. This is where he so becomes he needs a Clinton in campaign the game as well. strategist, you know, trying to rah rah. And he's just all in the game, but it's a good point, right? Like it is, it is. And I, so you kind of heard something I've been noticing throughout sort of more left wing media recently, within the last week and a half, maybe two weeks, is sort of a turn. Um, Against, against the Biden administration. Um, I feel like he's lost some of his supporters and sympathizers within the, the media. Well, yeah, because now his only like skill is not being Trump. And yeah, and he's not even doing a great job at that, to be honest. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that makes total sense. And you know, you hear people like Chuck Todd, who's been widely criticized by the left, by the way, for being too centrist and too willing to platform people with dissenting views but who'll say things like well you know why didn't biden reach out to Mitt romney who's you know he's known for fucking yeah. 40 years yeah. or whatever and be like where can we find some common ground right. and create some voting rights bill as opposed to alienating him right. alienating him right. I mean, Mitt romney came out well, it's after the same that thing speech. that happened with russia is like he okay he told him the consequences of war like this is that's now no longer a negotiation like, like right We've drawn a line in the sand. Yeah, that's that's the end of a negotiation, not a starting right. point. Like so, if, which by so, the way, how are we supposed to expect us, the Democrats to negotiate with China with Russia when they can't even negotiate with the Democrats? They can't. Yeah, <laughs> they can't figure out how to deal with cinema and mansion. You think they're going to deal with Putin? Oh, uh, anyways, so like he's been criticized for that. I think it's it's a valid criticism. Like I, it reminds me of what you sort of say about the what like his point there. Like they need to like Democrats need to do a better job of as Democrats mobilizing and yeah. doing doing the work of the party if they want the party to do anything. Because clearly the party doesn't work for anybody. Hi, I live under a third party <laughs> system. I can tell you the party doesn't do a thing for you. If it has right. momentum behind it, it'll keep the party going and with its momentum. But that's like that does like dead weight Leviathan things. But my point is, this reminds me of like the subject on the filibuster. You know, the, your, your position is like the Madisonian ideal doesn't have room for um, the like these filibuster rules that we have now. Um, sure, yes. like the filibuster came about as a way of saying like at some point we have to stop debating and make a vote. But you know, if 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 the majority wins, then you need to work at making sure that your minority party has a better coalition and can beat those n new majority opinions once they're in office in the future and we used to live under that kind of a system and i get it, everything's moving really fast right now and it's scary to think that four years of one to one system what they can do but like that that should also motivate you not make you feel hopeless um and all these changes that we're seeing happen to voting structures in the states are very scary and they impede that uh process but you know this isn't about mansion and cinema this is about the fact that you're relying on that slim of a majority to do anything that's what you need to accomplish. Like, find people on the other side. Take shit out of your fucking bills so that you can compromise. Break things down. Don't let everything come up to three or four votes a year that matter. Have 100 votes like you're supposed to do. Dude, if you could put that, what you just said, on a yard sign, I would fucking put that in my front yard. Yeah, but uh, yes. Sorry, thank you. <laughs> That's, that was very well said. Thank man. you. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Well, we are... Uh, I know we're supposed to argue, but... No, it's totally fine. Um, <laughs> we were going to talk about Russia more in the headline show. I don't yeah. want to get too bogged down into it, but I don't want to play this clip in the middle of our headline show. So um, I have two pieces of audio that I think really sum up 
the issue with um I, I think they frame modern Russia and the way Russia, um, what it would look like from their perspective. So consider being a Russian citizen. This is uh, Boris Yeltsin. Uh, so this is pre-Putin. Um, it's like the 90s, right? Yeah. So so Boris Yeltsin was at the White House. For listeners that don't know, Boris Yeltsin was a famous drunk. And, <laughs> yes, this, this and at this uh, press conference, at the end of a meeting that uh, Yeltsin and Clinton had, he had this speech or this, the, you know, they, they had joint, they had like a joint statement. Um, mm-hmm. And Clinton's was very boring and you won't hear any of it. Uh, and you won't understand the Russian. There's a translator, thank God. But you can hear how drunk he is in the Russian and you can tell that he's drunk by the, like, just the, like, just imagine a head of a state saying, like, there's nothing in here. It's like, eh, if I were a quarterback, I would have won the game. It's not like that, but it's just, it's a drunk president <laughs> and it's, and it's, I mean, there's a point. Well, here you'll hear it. Mr. President. <clears throat> Dear ladies and gentlemen. Dear journalists. That, that's not like the way he talks. That's no, the he's way slurring he's, a bit. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. I want to say, first of all, that when I came here to the United States for this visit at the invitation of the President of the United States, Bill Clinton, I did not at that time have the degree of optimism with which I now am departing. And this is all due to you, because coming from my statement yesterday in the United Nations, and if you looked at the press reports, one could see that what you were writing was that today's meeting with President Bill Clinton was going to be a disaster. Now, I just want to say before we play this last part, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I feel confident about this. I think about this uh, every time that I'm having a thought about like Russia and U.S. relationships. I think about this, uh, what I'm about to play. I think that modern U.S.-Russian relationships, what's, what's driven Russia to a large extent uh, is because of what you're about to hear happening. And the fact that Bill Clinton should have closed this down. He shouldn't have been out there. He was obviously drunk. Like there's all kinds of stories about the secret service that day. He slipped out of the white house to go get McDonald's drunk, not Bill Clinton. He also would do things like that too. I've heard, (laughs) but like that, you this, this was an embarrassment that we chose to put out onto the broadcast to shame our former rival. And that has been our attitude towards Russia. Every chance we had to not ruin them. We always have tried to rub their face in it. Through 2004, 2008, into 2014, and oh my gosh, wow! Now that they've been slowly building up their strength, maybe they have a response to it. But I, I, I get ahead of myself. Так вот не первый раз я вам говорю, что вы провалились. Well, now for the first time, I can tell you that you're a disaster. <laughs> I want you to listen to how long they're laughing. It's already been 10 seconds. 
still happen. I want to add. This is really where you can tell he's drunk. Uh, one more thing. One more thing. You are underestimating the president of two such great powers. Yeah, yeah, Maybe, maybe something didn't quite reach you. Maybe you can't quite figure out how we can solve it, but it came to us. It reached us. What a joke. What a joke. Okay, Mr. Yeltsin, this way. And he not, literally not a, escorts him by the arm off the, pad, off the podium. Not exactly diplomacy at its finest. Like, uh... The, you and know, it's subtle, right? Like, you could hear that and be like, what's Dustin exaggerating this to be? Like, that's fucking humiliating. Yeah. And there were plenty of off-ramps before they got to that yep. point that they could have taken and decided not to. And people have long memories of shit like that, so... Yeah. Well, certainly, you know, mid-level uh, intelligence analysts that can't believe that they lost because they had incompetent, you know... Uh, leadership. Leadership. <laughs> oh, that's Putin. It's just, I'm sorry. It's a good joke if I don't explain it, but in case anyone doesn't know, that's that's uh, also Vladimir Putin. Also, another guy. Which one, George? The guy. No, I was thinking Hitler, but oh Jesus! No, he was just an officer. He wasn't even an officer. No, no, but he was also unhappy with what he felt was right. Yeah, leadership well, yeah. and felt like the correct, correct. I get you. And uh, where are we yeah. at timestamp wise when Hitler gets brought up? Godwin <laughs> has entered the chat. Um, Alan, who's Fiona Hill? Uh, she was a former uh, senior director for Europe and Russia. Uh, this is off the top NS, of your head. I put NSC you on the spot. Person. Okay. She was on, uh, this is an interview of hers from 2015. Seven uh, years ago. Seven years ago. So this is post, uh, post, post Russia's invasion into Ukraine Crimea. and annexation right. of Crimea as it settled down, kind of like and Obama is still the president and what they expect going forward with uh, Russia and what they fear uh, Russia's most uh, extreme action may be kind of wide scope on this. But I think this is all worth hearing. And that's what he's doing with Ukraine. You guys have stepped over a line. You're going in a direction I don't like and I will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to make sure you don't succeed. But it's also beyond the military aspects of this. It could be economic. You know, again, making sure that Ukraine can never pay off its bills, can never get a restructuring of its debt, that the IMF program will always founder and that Ukraine will never move forward. It can be political, playing in terms of Ukrainian internal politics, taking advantage of their infighting to discredit them, to undermine Poroshenko or to recruit Poroshenko to kind of a more of a pro-Moscow position, basically to make sure that Poroshenko thinks, (laughs) lives, breathes Moscow. What is it that Putin wants? And also to keep everybody constantly guessing. Putin will never let us know. Uh, he will never show his hand. That's our big dilemma. We show our hand all the time. And, you know, we, we're, we're playing poker with a guy who's mastered the poker face and who's going to keep his cards very close to his chest and will take advantage of any mistake that we make. And he's looking at our hand the entire time. Because even if you can't see it directly, he's trying to pick off you know, various people around Europe and you know, kind of create his own 
coalitions and alliances through U.S. business and, you know, every other, you know, imaginable avenue that he can to figure out what it is that we're going to do. And, you know, we lay out red lines. We say about what we're not going to do. And Putin takes advantage of all of the situations. So the lessons for us, we have to be very careful about dealing with Putin to understand that he will take calculated risks, that he can be ruthless. He's going to be just a shameless opportunist. He is going to kind of manipulate every situation as much as he can to his advantage. And he's going to take his cue a lot from what we do and what we don't do. And so we're going to have to, in ourselves, if we have to deal with this, decide very firmly about what it is that we want to achieve, what goals we have. We have to be realistic. Right. And there's a little bit more to this. So I'll come back to it. But I mean, it kind of reminds me, there's a story about um, Angela Merkel. She was attacked by a dog when she was a kid. So she's afraid of dogs. And he knew this. And when he first met Merkel, he uh, he was like, oh, uh, I just, my dog's in the room. I hope you don't mind if he kind of sniffs you out, gets to meet you a little bit. And of course, he did that. And it's completely benign uh, to put her on it. He's a, he's a judo master. He actually is. And, and this is, is, this is what he's doing. Um, and, and you look at him on the world stage, you know, we have to be very clear with what we want, right? That's what she's saying here. It's going to be very, very difficult to create any semblance of a success in Ukraine. And we're going to have to really stick together on unity. We're going to have to really focus on that because Putin is going to look for every division, every vulnerability and every weakness that he can exploit. Because he is now staked an awful lot by spinning these narratives about Russian history, you know, the justification for the modern Russian state based on this long tradition going back to the empire and stretching through the Soviet Union to what happens in Ukraine. He's made Ukraine as much of now of a pillar of his policy, domestic and foreign policy, as oil and gas are the pillars of his economy. So I, I got to stress, first of all, that's from 2015. And I don't mm-hmm. feel like anything's changed in our position there. If anything, things got worse. But Putin, in my eye, is either aiming for, and we'll talk more about it on the on the headline show, but Putin's either aiming for a hot war or he is trying to induce one out of the West through a protracted period of, of flexing, right? So he, again, he's making, okay, your strength is your alliances. Well, let me make that strength a liability to you by testing your alliances, showing your weaknesses in it, and embarrassing you on the world stage. Uh, you know, at that we keep talking about how he's kind of getting to the point where he's going to have to go to war because he's flexing. You know, if he backs off and he ends up being able to say, look at the West, they're completely united against me in one hand as one way of saying, like, that's why I have to do this. Or look at the West. They can't even come to terms with what to do when we try to do something like this. We were never going to invade Ukraine. But of course, you know, like they, that's what someone who can <clears throat> leverage their point of weakness to use your strength against you would do. Which is judo. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. Right. I just <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I have a lot more to say here, but I kind of want to save some of that for Let's the headline sure. Sure. show. Sure. I mean, yeah, but we um, talked about just... like all the cyber and nukes and all that stuff. The fact that there's no fucking yeah. uh, agreements I... anymore. Like, yeah, we don't have any nuke agreements. That's fine. Go ahead. I will just, uh, one thing I will say here is that it does, like, if you kind of zoom out on this and look at everything that he's doing here and now, um, he's, he's playing like 5D chess here and it feels like, Sometimes we're playing checkers, um, and that's concerning. So I'll get into more of those details. Yeah, 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 we'll play it there. Um, So before we get into our interview, which deals with uh, the Fed and um, 
economics. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yes. I listen to the Economist podcast every morning, and they said a couple of things that shocked me because the Economist is kind of like mainstream economics, which tends to be like Keynesian. They had somebody on talking about the steps that the Fed is taking, what they can do. I'm going to play two clips. Here's the first one. The government might invent a sort of market stabilization mechanism for uh, energy prices whereby it shields consumers from high prices when uh, natural gas prices are high as they are today. And then when natural gas prices are, are low, it sort of recoups that money from the energy companies and tries to smooth out fluctuations in the price. Interestingly, uh, fun fact, where do you think uh, Europe gets a large percentage of its energy from? Like the Nord gas? 2 pipeline that is uh, has yet to be certified and turned on, right? From well, Russia. so there's already there's a pipeline Nord One runs through right. Ukraine. That's that's from Russia into the EU, and this goes uh, the through the second, Baltic. The second one it, uh, goes around U- Ukraine and, and into to okay. Germany. Um, so so yeah, and we'll talk about this on the headline show. But that is another chess piece on the board for Putin, um, yeah. and it's an important it's one. Testing our alliances, to. making our strengths a weakness. Yes, 100. percent Yes, consumer confidence is actually lower because high inflation has made the public doubt the strength of the economy. So people really dislike inflation. They punish incumbent politicians for inflation. So there is a sense in which politicians feel they have to respond. And that's what former US Treasury Secretary Larry Summers told our sister podcast, The World Ahead, this week. I think it's terribly important to the prospects for reasonable and sound governance that government show its basic competence by keeping inflation under control. So so basically, one of the things we talk about this interview is like the political influence, the, the politics are supposed to be divorced from the Fed as an institution. However, political stakes and the fact that these people, the heads of, the, of them at least, are politically appointed causes politics to be very much at the center of the decisions that they make, uh, which politics and economics really should not be in bed with each other. Well, I think, I think the point that, that our, our guests makes is that uh, it has to flow in the right direction. So necessarily, politics and economics are, are going to be linked. That's yeah, you have to have way. consideration of economics there's, as yeah, a politician. There's no way it's, yes. there, yeah, there's no way you're going to get around that. However, your, your economic policy should be derived from logic and, and math as opposed from your political philosophy. Right. Uh, so it should be, you know, economic first and then politics later, I guess, would be probably the flow chart. Yeah, don't make it go upstream. Right, right. Well, so, I, shall, Alan, shall we get to it? Yeah, rather than trying to push this podcast upstream, let's just get to the interview we got. <laughs> you want to set it up? Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. We interviewed Connor Mortel, friend of the show, and the brains behind the meme account Constitution of No Authority. Every time I see that, I want to say, like, no reservations, like Anthony Bourdain. (laughs) Anyways, uh, we discussed economics, specifically the Austrian school, as we mentioned, which he is very familiar with, and how they relate to current events. With no further ado, the Constitution of No Authority interview. Ladies and gentlemen and theys, welcome to the show, Connor Mortel. You can find Connor online under his government name, or under the popular meme account, Constitution of No Authority. Connor claims he's no expert on Fed policy, but if you check his bio over at Mises.org, that's M-I-S-E-S.org, 
you'll see that Connor graduated from TCU with a BBA in finance, minoring in Chinese language and culture. He went on to work as a legislative aide in the Florida House of Representatives from 2019 to 2021. And he currently is an MBA student at Florida State University. Additionally, he's a graduate of Mises University and has been known to teach classes on economics at the Pine School. I'm very jealous of those kids. My government-funded education certainly didn't teach me any of those things. But that's why we're having you on. So before we get into why we have you on, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your Instagram and Twitter handle, and if I may ask, why Constitution of No Authority? So Constitution of No Authority really was, first and foremost, because anatomy of the state was taken. (laughs) Good call. But my next favorite on the list was Lysander Spooner's Constitution... It's no treason, Constitution of No Authority. Lysander Spooner, for those who don't know, was a uh, constitutional attorney back about 60 years after the Constitution was written. And he wrote predominantly on abolition of slavery and then on libertarian issues. I don't know if he would have used the word, but effectively that of the time. And one of his most famous pieces was claiming that the Constitution bared no authority on the individuals. And while you could hold a politician to the authority because they do stand up and swear to the constitution. Any given individual does not necessarily take that same oath and is not bound by it. And his, his famous quote that I'm going to butcher is somewhere along the lines of whether it be one thing or another, the constitution has either allowed the government that we see today or been unable to stop it. Either way, it is unfit to exist. Of course, he was talking about the government of 60 years after the Constitution. <laughs> yeah, very different. nothing yes. like the modern state. So, I mean, imagine if he woke up from a coma today. <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, I was making that Instagram account because at the time I worked for the House of Representatives and I, I had some less than popular political opinions that I didn't want to come back to my, uh, to my employer at the time. Right, your personal so account. Just to yell into the void. And I was trying to think of a name. I had just read uh, No Treason. And like I said, Anatomy of the State, which is my favorite, was taken. So I was like, all right, what's next on the list? And that was there. It's, and I, I just ran with it. And honestly, I I really don't need the stupid meme account anymore now that I don't work there anymore. But I just, I've loved having that stupid thing for all this time. Would you, I, would, you, would you describe it as that? I don't mean to you know say it's a meme account. It's a meme I account. totally describe it as that. I, I, I always call it my stupid meme account because that's what it was. It was me getting to post stupid memes yeah. because I had no no one to listen. No one no one wanted to listen to me rant. So yeah, like, yeah. I'll do. Nice. I love the origin story, and that's that's one hell of a resume you've got going on there. Uh, so we want to talk to you a little bit about economics, etc. Uh, like what what brought sort of that into your foray as far as like how did you start being interested in the Fed and and things like that? How did you how did you come to this place? So when I went to TCU, I signed up to be a finance major because I was a white guy at a private school and it seemed to make the most sense. Um, sure. But I, I literally, I, I just decided I wanted to be a finance major because I thought I was interested. I really had no idea what I was talking about. Uh, but I had to take an economics course. And my first course in college was actually by an Austrian economist. He was my professor. He assigned me Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson which is one of the more popular intros to Austrian economics there are. Uh, he also signed me uh, Thomas Sowell's Basic Economics, and I read the two of them. I don't, I, I'm sure he taught me about the Federal Reserve in that class, and I'm sure those books cover it, but it didn't really hit home with me at the time. Like, I, I was just suddenly excited in economics. I wasn't paying attention to that part of class, whatever it may be. 
Right. Oh, I did get excited from that class, so I kept reading econ books on my own time. Said to my professor, look, I like these economic topics. What else should I read? What's the next book on my agenda? He pointed me a couple of ways, and it was a couple of years later I read uh, Ron Paul's End of the Fed and Murray Rothbard's What Has Government Done to Our Money? Those were probably my first two books on the Federal Reserve itself that got me interested in that. And then from there, I uh, I listened to some podcasts that referenced the Mises Institute, which for those of your listeners that don't know, is an Austrian economics organization out in Auburn, Alabama. And from there, it was, I mean, it was history. I mean, it, as soon as I, as soon as I found the Mises Institute, I fell in love with what I was researching, what I was reading. I, I ended up writing for them as much as I could. I like you said, I was a graduate of the Mises University, which is their summer program they have for college-age kids. And I've just, I, I've loved economics ever since I stumbled upon their organization. That, Very cool. Um, I, I don't want to let you leave without getting, I, I do have a specific question, like what is Austrian economics, but I'd rather table that for a little bit after we get into a little bit more of the steak and potatoes of this. So um, what, so my, my question for you, my main question for you, what I really wanted to have you on, I'm sure you heard a couple weeks ago, you, um, the, the, I'm sure you heard Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, I got to a point in the show where I just completely lost steam while I was upset with the fed. Maybe it was over, um, uh, I think it was like some insider trading or those people had retired. I can't recall uh, something nefarious. And I just, I had no steam. Like I couldn't articulate it. And I was like, you know what? Why don't I get someone on here that I know would gladly do that and probably do a better chance than I can. Uh, so wh what is, my question would be, what is the role of the Fed? And could you broadly appeal to the average person why they should be concerned about the Fed or at least be sympathetic to those who say it presents a, a problem to the ordinary person? All right, so the Federal Reserve, if you were to ask someone who wasn't me, <laughs> is the American Central Bank. It is a private organization that has been given authority to control money and credit in America, effectively the U.S. dollar and our credit rates. And the purpose in theory is to stabilize boom and bust cycles and they have a dual mandate of trying to minimize inflation while also minimizing unemployment. A Keynesian economist would say that these two things are separate, or not separate, are trade-offs. In order to lower unemployment, you have to lower uh, inflation, or you have to raise inflation. In order to lower inflation, you have to raise unemployment. I would not agree with that claim, that uh, things like the stagflation of the 70s have discredited that. But that is the general rule of thumb that they have these two competing things that they're trying to keep both as low as possible without letting the other one get out of hand. Hmm. Sure, there are factors where they get in the way of each other, but they are not necessarily direct contradictions. But that is, if you were to ask the Fed, their goal is to lower one. And typically they target a 2% inflation. I don't remember exactly what their ballpark is for low unemployment because that tends to vary and move. Right. Obviously, the past few years, we've seen different than 2% inflation and different than that unemployment. I then would argue that not only do they, those do not necessarily be a trade-off, one, I'd argue inflation is generally bad to the average person. Uh, a lot of people will make the claim that inflation can be good for the average person or the middle-class person or even the poor person because inflation tends to benefit those who hold those who are in debt to someone else because if you hold money that money loses value right right that's a lot of the defense of inflation a lot of the time 
However, the flaw with that is that it is not true that only the middle class person has debt. A lot of middle class people have their have their savings in some form of bond that is debt. And a lot of very upper class people take out more debt than anyone else in the world. So as a result, that's, that's kind of a kind of a missing point there to see that. And then they're additionally, like I said to start, they claim that the Federal Reserve's control of the money supply does what it can to smooth out boom bust cycles. An Austrian economist, which like you said, we'll get into later, but an Austrian economist like myself would claim that not only does it not smooth out boom bust cycles, but it is the active cause of boom bust cycles. And this is because of what we call Austrian business cycle theory. The claim here is that a recession in any given market happens somewhat naturally. I mean, people make business errors, life goes on, but this cluster of business errors all happening at the same time that we call a recession has to have some more specific answer. There has to be something that connects all the markets together that's leading to them having this, all these errors happen at the same time. And the argument we'd make would be that it is money and credit are the two things that draw all things together in an economy. So when you have errors within the money and credit, you're going to inevitably have errors in everything because that's what you're measuring all of your prices in and all of your costs in. And sorry, were you about to say something, Alan? No, I was just going to say, so before we kind of move on from from the yeah. role of the Fed, part of it also is to sort of maintain liquidity in markets as well. You don't want markets to seize up and you have economic collapse like we see like happening in Afghanistan or certain South American countries right now. Oh, how did that happen to Afghanistan, Alan? I'm sure no, there were I... no other factors. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. But that is also part of their role, right? It's, yeah. it's not just managing well, yes, inflation. Ask, yes, that's absolutely part of their role. Right, right. Okay. All right. So, I mean, we're seeing like record inflation right now. Um, and we're talking, you know, 70s level, right? 80s level, you know, um, 7%, 8% in the CPI. Um, so what would you say would be the the causes of that? And, and what would be the solutions that could be done without a Fed in place? So the inflation we're seeing right now, I think, has been building for a heck of a long time. I mean, in the mm -hmm. 2008 recession, we really didn't fix any of the underlying causes. We kept do we kept giving easy money and easy credit. So it's been building for a long time. Trump obviously gave out a lot of money in sure. his time and then Biden doubled down on it as he continued. Uh, a an Austrian would distinguish between inflation and price inflation. And price inflation is what we normally talk about day to day. We see the prices go up. Whereas a typical Austrian would say that the inflation occurs as soon as the additional money is added to the supply. And we don't always see it reflected in prices simply because in theory, the price of milk may have been about to drop by an entire third. So then tomorrow it only dropped by a sixth. And we're like, we see it as, oh, the price of milk went down when in reality inflation had occurred. We just didn't see the full extent of a drop we may have seen which Got is why it. we distinguish between the inflation of the money supply being added to and then the price inflation that we actually see of it going up. Obviously, we're seeing that massive price inflation start to hit. There's been money funneled into the economy time and time again, bigger than we've ever seen before. And then on top of it, the other thing about those direct inputs of money that both Trump and Biden did is a term called Cantillon effects, 
which is named after an economist named Richard Cantillon. And he basically explained that when this money goes into the system, a lot of people say, well, it went into everyone at once, so we're all going to be okay. Yes, there's going to be inflation, but we all we all get the money, so we all get to benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Cantillon explained that when you give people money, the first people to receive that money are going to be better off because they get to spend the money before the inflation really affects prices. Or it kicks in, right? Because there's that actual inflation versus price inflation. They get to spend it when the money supply is inflated, but the prices haven't been adjusted yet. So you see whenever, even in these almost helicopter dunce that we saw with Biden and Trump, where, okay, yes, it really did go to everyone. It came to us through our banks, and our banks effectively had access to that money before we did. And then it went in larger quantities to, I know the airlines got bailed out during those bills, and a lot of other groups got larger quantities of money. Mm-hmm. It's not just that the inflation happens, it's that the average person is the last person to have access to that money. And as a result, these big businesses and big banks get to benefit from the inflation because they get to spend before prices adjust at the expense of us who have to receive the money as the price is adjusting. So essentially by the time that the little guy gets it, it's already too late or it's, it's very exactly. late in the game and it's not worth as much as it was earlier in the game. Exactly. Got it. So Got l- it. let okay. me, I, I think I, then I, my follow-up to that would, would be, Let's talk about how that money gets into the money supply then. So it, it's, let me know if I'm right here. My understanding is the Fed funds the government by buying treasury notes. Where does the Fed get the money to buy the treasury notes? Well, it, um, let me see if I can actually pull this up. I have a little sheet for it that I have on here somewhere. Sorry. That's, that's promising. That. I'm hopeful that it's a, it's a process. <laughs> There's a flow chart maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> there is a whole process. Effectively, it, in reality, it creates it somewhat out of nowhere. And that's why we call it printing money. I mean, it's not literally printing money, but it is in them, in the act of buying the, in the act of buying these assets, like you said, that actually is how it creates the money. It, on its side of its asset sheet, it will, well, not on its assets, you know, its balance sheet. Balance sheet, right. It will add a, it will add a liability of itself that it owes this money. It has it, however it may be, it adds to it and then takes from its own hypothetical reserves. But in reality, it just alters its balance sheet, and that in and of itself creates the money. Isn't that like adjusts. what Enron did? <laughs> well, truth be told, the Federal Reserve is a private organization. I mean, it's it, the only difference between it. Well, not the only difference between it and Enron. But the real difference is simply that it's been given the authority to do this and no one else is allowed to compete. But it's it's a lot like it's it's not identical to what Enron did, but it's it is it creating its own thing. And it's disguising it's disguising its actual debts. Right. I mean, essentially, it's its own creditor in that it just it says, "Okay, I'm going to buy 100,000 of this particular asset, this bond, whatever it is, 100 million. And I'm going to enter that in the ledger. And now I owe 100 million dollars to myself. Except it can never (laughs) default. It can never face any consequences for owing itself any amount of money. Unless we default on our debt. They tend to say that they intend down the line to uh, have some sort of contractionary policy later on. Right now, they just said their former contractionary policy they're going to see is lowered interest rates coming this spring 
However, they've been saying this at least since 2008, really longer. And whenever they say, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to contract and we're going to flip back the balance sheet. We're going to, we're going to reduce our liabilities and sell these assets back and put them back out. And whenever they sell the assets, the money would then go back into them and it would be taken out of the, uh, of the money supply. However, it very rarely actually goes about selling these assets. It typically just keeps expanding the money supply because there's always the benefit to them to expand, whether it's through a more cronious purpose that they are as Fed chairman bankers and their friends are bankers and it benefits them, or it's simply the fact that contracting the money supply by almost any argument is going to cause a recession and that's not a popular decision so as a result, when they right. go back that other way and provide that accountability of reducing their liabilities again, it tends to be an unpopular decision because then people lose their jobs. Right. So and we like, just leave the, it on the balance sheet. And it's right. kind of like what we saw with the pandemic, where it's like there's things you're supposed to do during normal times so that when bad times hit, you're prepared. But instead, times are never normal enough for you to really do those things because there's always a tragedy of the moment or a, uh, exactly. a crisis of the moment. Actually, Alan, I, um, I just want to add that now it might be a good time to ask you this, or now is as good a time as any. You mentioned that like the bankers are kind of beholden to other central bankers. So there's something that I don't even understand. I wonder if you can. It's BIS. It's like the banks. It's the bank that this, all the central banks around the world use. Because it's not just the U.S. that has a Fed. Like, can you explain what that is? And maybe in a way that makes me not think that it's completely shady. Because <laughs> um, ultimately, no, they say that if they I don't believe it's not completely shady. Okay. Um, because right. because no ultimately they say that like those bankers say that their their allegiance is ultimately to those banks than their national banks that they represent is that normal thing to say or is that a crazy person thing to say I, a lot of what i say people might say is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> we're in a safe space here but, um, but no I, I don't think you're totally wrong and at the end of the day a central bank is like they describe it it's a banker's bank it's where all of our banks keep their money but like you said, every every government has its own central bank and they need to exchange within them. So as a result, the BIS is the next level up there. It's their way of facilitating exchange between the central banks. But all these people are appointed by people that are elected. And then of those people that have been appointed, some of those are then either selected or become the people they get to make the decisions within that inner group with that inner bank like that. Like I could say that with like weird music in the background and an Alex Jones voice, and it would be like a really good conspiracy. But I'm saying it nor perfectly normal here because this is like textbook for what that is. I uh, I even you you had sent me that before this, and I I pulled up that Investopedia page you were reading just yeah. to see where we were on the same page, and I I'm fairly certain that's literally what Investopedia describes it as. I mean, this is this is not Alex Jones saying it on. Oh God, I forgot the name of Alex Jones uh, show. Infowars. Oh, Infowars. Infowars. Yeah. It's. <laughs> It's, I mean, it is on Wikipedia and Investopedia. That's, that's how they would describe it. And we, we as Americans probably have a little more influence in that particular sure. realm. Yeah. Around that most banks hold their currencies reserve currency. In cash, US, US dollars, right? Dollars. Yeah. So as a result, they are kind of relying on us holding it all together. Okay. So I guess people that would defend the Fed as um, a necessary entity would say that. First of all, we want them somewhat insulated from the political environment, which is why while they're appointed, they're not we're not elected and that they do they do uh, fulfill a role in our economy in, in attempting to keep it 
um, you know, somewhat leveled out. As you said, the argument um, from the Austrian side is that it, it does the opposite of that. Um, so wh where is that? Why is that disconnect so massive? Um, for one, I think a lack of economic foundations for the vast majority of people. I mm -hmm, sure. I think economics is very rarely taught. Like I said, I got a business degree with one economics class. Right. I think that's laughable. Um, and on top of it, I think it's like you said, you would want there to be a separation of the politics and of the control of money. Uh, I, I would argue that uh, one of the two Austrian solutions being either a commodity standard or competition in currency so that multiple banks could have their own currencies and you'd have the more sound money win out. Um, mm. Obviously, that gets into a complicated conversation. Uh, that being said, at the end of the day, when you see how closely coordinated, I mean, Janet Yellen is our new secretary of the treasury and mm. was our former Fed chair, or I got right. that because I can't remember which way they always go. No, you're right. Our Fed and our government is so deeply intertwined because our government relies entirely on our Federal Reserve and our Federal Reserve gets appointed by our government. So it gets so deeply intertwined that you don't really get that disconnect between politics and the control of the money supply. They are deeply connected. And as a result, it's always going to they're going to get it's going to be in their best interest to stand out and say, well, yeah, we are unpolitical, regardless of them being political. That's going to be the nature. And I mean, I do the same thing in their position. This, sure, it, it's it's simply because they are not they are not disconnected the way they should be. They are almost one in the same animal. So you said something there about a, a a better solution, perhaps, would be competing currencies, and that, of course, brought to my mind cryptocurrencies. I have a couple of questions. I don't know how into crypto you are, but I have a couple of questions about crypto. So first of all, when I think about inflation and I think about all the wealth that's been created out of essentially nowhere with, with cryptocurrencies and things like NFTs, where suddenly this, you know, eight pixel drawing of an ape is worth half a million dollars. Like, like is, does that have some impact on inflation, do you believe, in the economy? And then second of all, is crypto really a better solution? And perhaps, you know, we don't have a gold standard anymore. Should we anchor something, our economy to something more... Um, I don't know, democratic, like, like, like crypto is. Um, I or and finite and finite. I, what was that? Oh, and, and finite, like, like uh, Bitcoin is. Yeah. So I, I am a big Bitcoin guy. I am a toxic Bitcoin maximalist. I, uh, <laughs> I had I, a feeling, crypto, but I almost exclusively use and use and enjoy Bitcoin. Okay. Um, in the, when I brought up the concept of competing currencies, uh, the original real person to, advocate for that argument was Friedrich Hayek who wrote something called the denationalization of money and in his last paragraph or two he says that he really doesn't believe we'll ever have sound money again until we find a way to slyly introduce it in a way that can't be stopped that quote gets thrown around a lot in crypto communities because there's a strong argument to be made that that's exactly what crypto is it is that sly roundabout way that it's too late for them to stop I right. think something finite like crypto or gold would absolutely be a better option than what we see now. I uh, I did write, in fact, the first thing I ever had published on the Mises Institute, I was writing about subjective value and I was arguing people are quick to call gold or cryptocurrency having its own objective value. 
And I was saying, just like anything else in the world, its value is subjective. Its value is what someone's willing to pay for it. That being said, uh, most argue, most Austrians argue that there are certain things that make a sounder, better money and that make something, while it still relies on a subjective value for the people to adopt it, it makes something more likely historically to be adopted. And that's its ability to be transmitted across space and time and its ability to hold its value over time. And then additionally, its ability to not be inflated and things like Bitcoin, which have a unchangeable inflation structure that will cap out at 21 million Bitcoin and then that'll be it. Right. That criteria. Obviously, Bitcoin is the jury's still out on whether or not it'll hold its value. I'm a believer that it will. But all you see uh, now is speculation on it causing those price changes. It's finite. Right. Once it's all been collected, then you're only having speculation to adjust that price, right? Absolutely. And in fact, there are Ludwig von Mises, the man who the Mises Institute is named after, had a theory called the regression theorem of money. And the claim there is that all money must originally start as barter. I, I bought a sack of flour from you with two eggs. You went out and took one of those eggs and bought something else. And because eggs were more, more saleable than a full cow, people started using eggs to buy part of a cow. Right. It becomes a currency. Eggs aren't a great currency because they spoil too fast. (laughs) That's just what I'm using here. Sure. But the the argument Mises used was that if all currency must originate from barter, it has to, if you look at it now, regress back. And as you look at it, its value today must come a little from yesterday. Its value yesterday must come a little from the day before. And you can take that chain all the way back to when it was originally bartered for. And he claims that its value that it originally had in barter, if it were to be eggs, could be lost entirely. Mankind could wake up tomorrow and with the lack of an ability to eat eggs. And even though its original trade value is gone, once it got adopted as money, it would have a value from being a money. Mm -hmm. So even if its original value went away, its new money value would be able to be maintained once it achieved that status. And he also argued in that that because its money value is separate from its use value, when it begins to develop a money value, it will have cycles like we see with this Bitcoin as it explodes from 3,000 to 60,000 within a year, things like this, because like you said, people are speculating on its use, not just as a digital currency, but as a very real money, not an investment, but something that could be used down the line. Something with utility. Yeah, exactly. And they're now investing that, investing in that money value beyond just its initial utility. And do you see that? So the rise in, in um, you know, the the price of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, things like NFTs. Do you see that having an impact on the rest of the economy? So let's say the U.S. economy, um, as far as creating additional inflation, or do you see that it's just a it's a separate microcosm? Um, well, I see it. First of all, I see inflation affecting it in the fact okay okay in reality as much as it pains me to say when we see bitcoin explode the way it does a large part part of that probably has to do with the fact that the dollar's value is really going down rather than bitcoin's value going up um additionally i see it affecting inflation not in creating it but actually in doing the opposite in if it were really achieved as a currency as a real currency that were tradable and accepted uh, it would really decrease inflation because it would put competition on the federal banks 
uh, not the federal, the federal reserve banks, they now going forward would have to say, look, people are noticing that our money is falling apart because mm-hmm. there's this other money out in the world that isn't falling apart. So I, I'm an optimist and I like to believe that Bitcoin could play that role. I don't really know if it will in my lifetime, but I, I love Bitcoin and I like to believe that it could play that role of actually providing competition to the U.S. dollar. Nice. Well, we like optimists on this show, so good on you. Yeah, I mean, that's part of what we try to do, right? Like, we want to be somewhere where, like, Alan is whatever the fuck he is, and I'm some sort of adjacent libertarian or libertarian. I don't want to accept a title. But, like, <laughs> you know, we, we like we talk to each other in a common language. So in that way, right. in that sense, I don't want people to think that you're on here as whatever their version of a libertarian is, which might as well be a MAGA alt-right to the average whatever you know, so so with that person in mind, um, uh, uh, a siloed progressive, I would say their top issues would be things like income and wealth inequality. If there is, is there any overlap where you can communicate your complaints with the Fed while addressing those people's concerns? I, I absolutely. I'd say that my complaints with the Fed. I'd say that the Federal Reserve is probably not the sole factor contributing to it, but one of the largest factors contributing to income inequality. The average person living paycheck to paycheck has to live off of money that they have here and they cannot invest to compete with the inflation that's occurring and their money as it's devalued. Any little savings they have gets pretty much destroyed, whereas the wealthiest in society, A, like I said, benefit from those Cantillon effects where they get to actually benefit from inflation and on top of it, they can invest in massive hedge funds that let them compete at a level well above inflation so they can maintain their savings right while the average person can't i i would without a doubt say that the federal reserve is the biggest contributor to income inequality in america today well is it um and this might be kind of adds to that when you talk about like money becoming less valuable would is is inflation a natural state like are prices doomed to always go up as a kid i remember thinking like you know, you watch like Old House on the Prairie and they bought a stove and it was like a dollar fifty. Like and I was like, well, I guess right. that makes sense. That was over 100 years ago. You know, uh, you know, if you, you have two percent every year before you know it. It's a, I don't know how much a stove is. I should. But uh, um, but but is that a, is that something in the nature of prices that they tend to go up? Uh, well, it's it's been in the nature of prices for 100 years because we've had a Federal Reserve. But in reality, if you think about it, it should be the opposite of that. Now, prices, as an Austrian, I would argue, are dictated by the consumer in that a price is as much as the consumer is willing to pay. A business is never going to think, well, I can make this for less. So actually, because even though you're willing to give me 10 bucks, I'll only give you, I'll only take five. Businesses are greedy. <laughs> the amount they're going to take is the maximum that a consumer is willing to give. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, a price is always going to be subjective based on consumer preferences. But because businesses are going to compete and hopefully try and steal business from each other, you'd really expect prices to go down because technology improves. At the end right. of the day, whatever the price of a stove is, I don't know what it was 100 years ago, and I don't know what it is now. It's got to be cheaper to make one now, right? I was going to say, I can tell you, I could probably make a stove today. <laughs> right. Whereas a person in my position 100 years ago couldn't even fathom how to make a stove. Right. The technology to make one is so much easier that the competition for a stove should drop the price significantly. Yeah. When in reality, because of inflation, we see it rise and rise and rise. Right. 
Uh, there was an economist named, uh, it was Selgin and White. And as far as inside baseball goes, there are some divides within the Austrian school of uh, economics. So some of my Austrian friends won't like me for talking about them, but they, they uh, George Selgin wrote a book called Less Than Zero, and he argued for a productivity norm where he said, in reality, we should strive for some deflation. And he argued that we should target prices adjusting with productivity. And he said that would see deflation more often than inflation because you'd see those prices go down naturally from productivity increasing with time because of technology. Well, I think you have seen that like in certain areas, for instance, like a television, right? Like you could buy a 60 inch television for pretty, pretty inexpensive these days versus maybe five years ago, you might've paid three times that price for an inferior product, by the way, because the technology has progressed, right? Yeah. Well, and that's, um, that's why, that's why I go back to what I said earlier about the difference between inflation and price inflation, because at the end of the day, when I was talking about that with price inflation, I said, you know, there'll be times that even though inflation happened and the price went up X percent, it fell Y percent, which was bigger than X. So as a result, it looked like the price fell, even though it really rose in its own right. I think there's an argument made without the inflation we've been seeing, the TV would have been even cheaper than it is today. Right. And we do see that happening, especially projects like TVs, phones, things that are particularly technology technologically centered. Right. Those, I'd say, A, would be falling even more than they are, and B, like Dustin said, we do, as kids, we see the SpongeBob episode where some one of the fish says, oh, I remember when I was your age, I could buy a quarter for a nickel. <laughs> and you see, you see that happening in the world, and that really is what kids and young adults think is the natural state of being, is that, well, of course a quarter was a nickel back then. That money was less back then. Right. Money less later, or money's going to be more later. But at the end of the day, there's no reason that that should be true when productivity is increasing for all goods, really. And the only goods where it's not increasing are goods where people don't want them anymore because we're not buying them anymore. And and to the point of the television, TVs have gone down significantly in price because they offset the cost of the TV onto the uh, data that they sell to the brands to get your data from having a smart television. So it, that would have brought down the price of a TV significantly. Now, maybe they'd be around where they are. Maybe they'd be $100 cheaper is kind of the argument, right? Yeah. And well, of course, so Frederick Bastiat, who was a French economist, said that the difference between a good economist and a bad economist is that a bad economist sees what's seen. We see the TV price drop. Mm. The good economist is the one who can take the next step and see what isn't seen and we see what didn't happen. Now, it's always going to be complicated to talk about that, what the price would have been in a world that doesn't exist. So it's it's difficult to imagine that. But at the end of the day, I would argue that it would be lower because the value of money has decreased. So even though the price has fallen, it's been counteracted by the value of money being decreased. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yep. Uh, so, yeah. so, okay, Connor. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that saying things like this gets people so ostracized into like conspiracy thinking weirdos? So I've got a couple answers to that. First is kind of what I said earlier. The economic understanding of the average American is fairly low. So as a result, typically the people who care enough about economics to learn this are weirdos. <laughs> um, it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean they're conspiracy thinkers, but it, 
It means it's the kind of person like me who will sit up in bed and read a textbook because I'm bored. It's like the type of, it's like in science where you're very lucky when you get a DeGrasse Tyson that's very knowledgeable and able to communicate it. Usually exactly. the thing that makes him so knowledgeable makes him terrible at being able to talk. <laughs> right. Which you don't suffer from, by the way. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, the other thing, and I, uh, I think it was Per Byland, who's an economist at the Mises Institute, who said this when I was at Mises U was talking about how Austrian economics and libertarianism have been more or less intertwined over the last long time now. Mm -hmm. um, and while there's an obvious reason for that, the, the conclusions of Austrian economics tend to benefit those who are libertarian leaning. Austrian economics wants, Austrian economists tend to want government out of business and believe that regulations are detrimental. And as a result, libertarians and Austrian economists tend to merge together. But in reality, libertarian philosophy and Austrian economics are two different things. But to an outside observer who really doesn't know that, they see the guy who, A, believes in all sorts of conspiracy theories, and B, believes in Austrian business cycle theory. And they think, oh, well, this person must be a conspiracy theorist, and that's why he believes what he's saying. When in reality, it's that Austrian, Austrian economics has drawn a bit of a following from people who haven't believed that, but it is not in any way really related to libertarian philosophy or or to a conspiracy theory. It is a school of economics in and of itself. And I, as a libertarian, strongly believe in libertarian philosophies as well, but they do get intertwined into the mind of an average person. There's no difference between, well, the Fed is stealing your money and, well, they've turned the frogs gay. Because they're <laughs> the same person say both these things yeah. and they think okay, they must be together. Well, right. Yeah, not, they're not inherently the same. And, that, and right. it's easier to do that than to have to accept what they're saying. It's easier to just exactly. like um, dismiss someone that's like that. In, you know, as On top of it, they spent at least 15 years being taught on some level that the Federal Reserve has been good for them and been looking out for them. So as a result, when someone... When someone comes out and says that's wrong, when you've got a 15-year foundation believing otherwise, you've got to really be convinced that that's wrong. Sure, sure. I, so, so the philosophies, while uh, being compatible, are certainly separate. Libertarian versus the Austrian yeah. economic school absolutely makes sense. I think as somebody kind of from the outside looking into economics, somebody, you know, I have pretty broad interests. I read a lot of different stuff, but trying to read economics books is. It often feels like they definitely are coming from a political place when you read them. It, and it, I don't know why that is. I guess it's, it's impossible to communicate the ideas they're trying to without coming from there. Uh, but I read a number of books and, about economics, and it's like, wait, what are you trying to sell me here? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It was So I, uh, I, I read a book a while back by uh, Michael Hoffman. I think you can follow him. If, for those of you listening, it's Ostro underscore punk because he. Oh, uh, I like that. Well, he's <laughs> he's a young Austrian economist who has gone gone toe to toe with some of the more generally accepted Austrian beliefs. Mm -hmm. And one of the more well established Austrians said, "Oh, I don't want to listen to those Ostro punks." <laughs> nice. He, he ran with it. So if you follow him, it's Ostro underscore punk. But I. I don't know if he was quoting someone or if he said it himself, but I remember when I was first getting into all this, I saw him post something along the lines of, it's very important that you make sure your economics influences your politics and not your politics influences your economics. Because 
as yeah. a fallible human being, you are never going to be able to disassociate the two. Conclusions of economics are going to alter your political worldview, but it's it's a matter of making a point as you're reading that you you're being sold something political just because any economic belief is going to affect politics. It's a matter of questioning, okay, do I believe these economics to be sound? And if so, I should let this influence my politics rather than, well, I'm a libertarian and Ron Paul hates the Federal Reserve. <laughs> By the way, of course, I idolize Ron Paul and I hate the Federal Reserve. I could not say that more complimentary. But sure. it's not saying, well, I'm in a libertarian. That Ron Paul guy I love said he hates the Federal Reserve. This book hates the Federal Reserve. This must be right. You've got to go the other direction with that. That makes sense. That makes sense. And And with what you said earlier, like I mean, you just said that you can't separate your if if you go downstream from politics into your economics, um, I think I think that's something that everyone listening can be like, yeah, you should avoid doing that. But if you back up to earlier in this conversation, that's probably your chief complaint with the structure of the Fed is that it can't separate those two things. Yeah. Okay. Well, case right, closed. So, I'm done. <laughs> so we've kind of danced around it a little bit, uh, but Austrian economics, can you just sort of kind of lay out, I mean, we've already kind of touched on a lot of it, but can you lay out sort of some of the basic precepts uh, and then where you might recommend people go that are interested in more uh, Austrian econ info? So Austrian economics, your listeners won't be able to see this, but I've got my, my Austrian economists poster on the wall behind me. I see it, yes. It was, uh, it was started with Karl Menger, this guy right over behind me here, but Karl Menger uh, worked for the Austrian government, hence the name Austrian economics. And Karl Menger uh, wrote about what he called, because Austrian economics wasn't a term at the time, but causal realist economics. And the concept was that it should be based on cause and effect and reality. Too much of economics is building these models and formulas that at the end of the day, human beings don't act based on models and formulas. We need to find economics that actually reflects reality rather than trying to force reality to reflect our economics. Uh, right. He wrote uh, a number of things, most, most prominently his principles of economics and his origins of money. He explained that money has to start with barter. He explained that value is subjective. He explained what a good is because back at the time that was, that was groundbreaking. And he was intellectually preceded or succeeded by a man named Eugen von Bambavrik. And he, his major contributions were on capital and interest theory. Uh, he, he was especially known at the time Karl Marx was a prominent figure. And he was known for writing against the exploitation theory of interest, saying that interest doesn't come from, well, the business gets it because he exploited from the worker. He claimed, however, instead that the reason interest occurs is because people value money now over the way they value money later or any good for that matter. So as a result, there's some degree of a reward in exchange for my money now. I need to get more money later. And then from there came Ludwig von Mises, who is one of the most well-known names in, economic, in Austrian economics now. He wrote a treatise called Human Action, and that was where a lot of where the definitions of what someone today might call Austrian economics come from, where he said that economics is the study of human action. It is the understanding that while human beings don't act rationally in the sense that I bought this T-shirt for, I don't know, 
after the fact, I was like, hey, you know what? It should, I shouldn't have spent $15 on that. That isn't an irrational action. He described rational action as the belief that using a means will likely achieve an ends you want to achieve. And if you use the means with the intention of achieving an ends, even if it was the wrong way of going about it, it is still a rational action. And he said, from there, economics is the understanding of everything based on that assumption. You look at two people making decisions and you have to evaluate why they or what that decision meant as for the economy. And you extrapolate all the way up to the Federal Reserve System beyond just me buying a T-shirt. Um, his predecessors or his successors, I keep getting that backwards. His successors have branched off into various competing areas of the Austrian school where there was a line that run, ran through F.A. Hayek and Israel Kurzner. There's the line that I tend to subscribe to that ran through Murray Rothbard, Hans Hermann Hoppe, Walter Block, Joe Salerno. Uh, Austrian economists are basically anyone who runs along that intellectual line of thinking that's, that ran through those particular individuals. Uh, one, of the, one of the economists with the Mises Institute argued that the defining trait for an Austrian economist is the use of praxeology, which is a big fancy word that Mises used. And it basically meant we just use a priori reasoning, humans act, and you can't disprove that because in, in arguing against that, you've taken an action and proved that humans act. These mm -hmm. logical foundations that based on logic alone must be true and building up from that based on the understanding of watching humans act versus a more mainstream economic approach of empirical and historical data. Uh, the argument is that at the end of the day, historical data can be cherry picked. It can be misunderstood. Whereas logic, as long as the logic is sound, the, the data will follow. Like uh, Murray Rothbard wrote a book called America's Great Depression. And he explained that the Austrian business cycle theory argues that a depression should have come and everyone says, well, you know, in the 20s and 30s, actually the government, or not the 20s and 30s, in the teens and 20s, the government, it did all this and there wasn't an, an, any, any recession throughout it and it didn't hit until the 30s when, and the government ended up saving us because they did these actions to pull us out of it. And he uses data to prove, well, actually this happened and this happened and the prices should have been X, Y, and Z during the 20s. And they fell in the 30s because of this data. But he starts foundationally with logically, this is the economic approach. So when we go, so data must follow this because the logic is sound. Whereas when you start with data, you can have any logic. I can say Dustin's wearing a yellow shirt because his favorite color is yellow. That's not true. His favorite color may be yellow. It's <laughs> hope, you know it's red. Me right, I've I started from the empiricism and worked backwards. Right, which doesn't um, work. But then some of the bigger contributions, like I said, capital and interest theory, subjective value theory, business cycle theory. Uh, one of the big ones back in the 1900s was the economic calculation argument, which claimed that uh, socialism was inherently flawed because there was no ability to economically calculate within it. And at the end of the day, the major Austrian and economic contributions come from those things. And lately, one of the bigger things the Austrian school has added most recently is its additions to entrepreneurship within the field of economics. 
most schools of economics don't really touch on entrepreneurship as much at all. Definitely not as much as the Austrian school. Yeah. And it's where you've actually seen a lot of Austrians gain a foothold in different universities because they're the only econo economists who are talking about entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So most economics classes within entrepreneurship programs tend to find them. You've got guys like- That's, that's kind of that's kind of scary. That, that feels like, I think entrepreneurship is like a signature aspect of Amer the American experience. Oh, well, absolutely. And that's, that's why I go back to what Carl Manger said about how a lot of economists make their formulas and they make their charts and their graphs and try and apply reality to it. Whereas we need causal realism where we're looking at reality. Or you at least need both schools out there, like having a dominant, like not just one of them dominating the conversation. Well, and for what it's worth, there are, there are lots of schools out there. There's the, there's the Chicago School of Economics, which is very free market as well. That's where you're going to get guys like Milton Friedman. Mm. Um, they would disagree with Austrians. But, uh, but these, aren't the dominant, one, these aren't the dominant voices anymore, though. Well, yeah, but uh, there's, there's, there's always going to be several voices out sure. there. But at the end of the day, there are many voices that are much, much tougher to hear if you aren't looking for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Well, that was a great answer, man. And so I want to say thank you for being so generous with your time. I uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. I know Dustin, I think, has one more question. Yeah, I can't let you go you without out. you defending your case against uh, copyright and, and uh, intellectual property. Because I'm on board with you. I've been persuaded before, but I can never like remember it in a conversation in an effective way. So I don't, I don't even feel like I genuinely believe it still. But persuade me what, once again. Uh, so the case was originally made by Stephen Kinsella, who is actually a patent attorney. Um, if anyone wants to really dive into it, his against intellectual property is a pretty short read, but it gets into all of it. It is based on libertarian philosophy. It starts with the groundwork that property rights are more or less the foundation of society. It, it is is the bedrock of libertarian philosophy. And as a result, if we want to look at property rights, and especially as uh, as Locke described property rights as anything, the mixture of your natural resources or of, of natural resources with your God-given talents, the combination of those two in a way that makes something scarce is what makes something your property is how Locke described it. Okay. And the original philosophical foundation of that is that at the end of the day intellectual property doesn't do that if Dustin were to go out into the beach and make a seashell necklace he owns that seashell necklace he put his labor in with the natural resources and made that seashell ne necklace but at the end of the day he has no legitimate claim on Alan making another seashell ne necklace down a mile down the beach at the end of the day Alan's making of a seashell necklace, even if he stole the idea from Dustin and didn't come up with it on his own, has not deprived Dustin of anything. He simply has a seashell necklace now. There, there are the arguments that at the end of the day, you put in more research and development. And, right. And that, that's, that's, the, that's to me, that's the compelling counterpoint. So what do you say to that? The value of what you did is gone because you went through all of that. Um, my first answer to that is that in reality, that's never how intellectual property is actually used. Mm. Intellectual property in reality is used by companies like Apple, who actually have teams of lawyers whose job full time 
is to patent products they don't intend to make to keep the little guy out of the market. So more often than not, intellectual property ends up putting up barriers to little guys rather than giving them a fighting chance. But additionally, it's also intellectual property. We make this one carve out in the world for it, where for some reason, the fact that someone else is it, it, my, my value will go down is somehow related to you doing it. And for some reason gives me more authority over this right now. I own a Gary Patterson signed helmet. I'm going to cry because he's gone, but I own a Gary Patterson signed helmet. Nice. I have no ability to tell Gary Patterson to stop signing helmets because it's going to make my signed helmet become less valuable. Right. Um, I went through the work of forging that relationship <laughs> and getting that, and it, it, it was tough for me to get that signed helmet. It, it put in a lot of mental labor. But at the end of the day, if someone else gets another signed helmet, I have no reason to say, whoa, 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 I had a signed helmet first. You have to right. give that to me or pay me for that. You have no philosophical right to that helmet. All right. Is that an interesting argument? Yes, I like it. I like it. <laughs> like I said, if you really want to dive into that, Stephen Kinsella's little little pamphlet or essay or book or whatever you want to call it is going to be really the best place to find it. No, nah, I'm not going to do that. I heard you on a podcast. I'm good. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Dude, Connor, this has been so much fun. Thank you for the yeah, time. Yeah, man. man. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And before I go, I absolutely have to say that I am Connor Mortel and I never listen to the Nun Taken podcast. Fuck yeah. Yes. <laughs> I totally would have forgot. Thank you. Yeah. We always forget. We always forget to ask. And it's like the next week we're like, oh, you know what we didn't do? <laughs> I still feel overwhelmingly guilty. I will say I asked Tom Woods to his face. And he said, oh, that's a great idea. Let's shoot the video later today. Oh, my God. He avoided me the whole day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome, man. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Oh, of course. It was fantastic getting to chat with you guys. Right. We'll talk again right soon. Right on, man. All right, have a good one. Have a great one. Later. All right, cheers. All right. Well, that was fun. That went on way longer than I expected. Well, he's hear. somebody you can just talk to and, he, you know, ask questions and he just goes. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Like, it was so, like, well, I don't want to like, slow you down on that. That's a good answer. Let's just keep which going. Which is like yeah. great for an interview. Like, like you, that's what you want. Yeah. And <laughs> like, I was like, oh, this is great. I don't need all these yeah. questions. Like, I might not right. say it. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> yeah, it was a great interview. So we'll have him back on. I already Absolutely. reached out to him. He's like, absolutely. Anytime. So. Right on. Um, right I kind of want to go out. Let's just go. Let's go out on a DAQ. I haven't asked you a question yet. Oh yeah, let's. I've been watching a lot of the Australian Open while I fall asleep because that's when it broadcasts live. Mm-hmm. Uh, given the past, the, given the given the events of the past few years, doesn't Australian Open sound like a bit of an oxymoron? <laughs> I mean, actually, considering their immigration history, I mean, this this has probably never been an appropriate name for a tennis tournament held on a former prison colony, right? Yeah, opens a bit ironic. Uh, I agree. Dude, I agree. birds die every year diving into those blue courts. Natasha's like, oh, yeah, all the courts are blue in Australia. I'm like, I, I don't know if I have questions, but I feel like there's <laughs> questions. Like, why is that like an Australian standard? Like, that's so weird. That's they just like them blue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, man. Well, um, I'll talk to you in a couple of days. We'll do a show on Friday. That was fun. That was fun. All right, man, you drive safe. Cheers. All right, no offense. I'm pooping right now. Is Kevin McCarthy a moron, and if so, why? Why would you say something that stupid? I come without explanations or solutions. I'm a very sexy lady. (laughs) Ted Cruz, go fuck yourself. Read the news. God bless 
the United States. Now this is podcasting.